Welcome back, folks, to Heart of the Bookkeeper, Amanda Linton. This is part B. If you missed part A, I would suggest you pop back and listen to part A before proceeding. But for those who have already completed that, here it is, part B, Amanda Linton, Heart of the Bookkeeper. Enjoy. Amanda, I have to say that the story that you've just shared with us has really, you know, it's just amazing what you've just shared with us. I can't, I can't even put it into words. It's an incredible story and yet I gather and I know that that wasn't necessarily the end of it all for you, the depression and the anxiety that you clearly felt that day, the day that Leanne came and uh, was your angel in waiting, I guess you could say. Are you able to, or are you you're sort of willing to sort of continue that journey and tell us what happened after that? Because I, I expect it wasn't the end of it all for you. No, look, it wasn't, Rob. It was a, um, it was a, an extended journey beyond that point, but it was the day that that all happened was sort of the first day of the turnaround, I suppose. And the the wonderful thing about that is when Leanne had actually said to me, you know, um, I think it might be worth you trying to talk to someone. And we reached out to my GP and um, the GP then helped me work through what my options were. And it was, it was a strange kind of a feeling really. It was almost a relief because I'd been living with this self self-doubt and, um, you know, real lack of confidence for, for three years and really feeling like I just couldn't be who I was. And so what that meant when I actually went and spoke to my GP, what that actually did was it, w- it was almost like I'd been called out and this huge weight just lifted. Um, it was like I was, finally there was a name for how I was feeling. And so combination of, you know, working through with my GP and then, you know, just the love and support of family and friends because clearly by, by that stage, family and some close friends were starting to understand what was going on. And so it was it was one of those things where I just, you know, I just had to put my trust and faith in the people who were around me. And that was a pretty unusual thing for me to do because, Right throughout my life, I'd always been the strong one. I'd always been the one that people came to when they had challenges. I'd never really been in a situation where I had to reciprocate that, and that was a bit of a challenge for me at the time. So, look, it was a long road to recovery back. It took me um, clearly because of where I'd gotten myself to. Um, I couldn't work full-time, so I had to cut myself back to part-time work. And it took me nearly eight months to get back to a full-time working capacity. I suppose I was just really fortunate that I had three or four close clients that I was working with at the time who didn't necessarily know what was going on, but who had enough foresight to sort of say, hey, look, do what you can, when you can, we'll work with you as best we can. And they were really part of that recovery process as well. So having people around me who just sort of let me recover in my own way, in my own time, and but by the same token too, just knowing that they were there and knowing that I could actually ring them and say, hey, I'm having a really crappy day. Like, could I, you know, could, could we grab a coffee or those kinds of things? So I don't think there was any one thing that led to that recovery. But as I say, what it really did was it it really brought me back to earth, I suppose, and taught me that I wasn't bomb-proof. And as much as I used to think that, you know, I could handle anything that got thrown my way, it was a real reality check that you need people around you. You, you can't 
work through life at a very high pace for a very extended period of time and think that you're going to be okay because um, first-hand experience tells me that that's just not the way the world works. Isn't it a funny thing? You've um, sort of referenced the fact that, you know, in some ways your clients helped you at various stages with your dealing with the depression and the anxiety. And and I've had a similar experience. I'm sure many of our listeners um, will quite often, you know, only see clients for being clients, but they can play an impact in your life uh, in our bookkeeping industry and our bookkeeping journey. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that you've raised that because I, I too have had a similar experience with clients in the past where in some ways they kind of almost become that distraction that you mentioned to be able to to unpack exactly the, the feelings that you've got at the time. And they really, and they really did. Um, but it wasn't only my clients, might I say. So a couple of things that, a couple of other things that helped, as I say, having friends around me who were just prepared to be goofy and make me laugh. And, you know, um, Leanne used to ring me on, a, she used to ring me every morning um, by nine o'clock. And she used to say, my mission is to make you laugh at the first part of the day. And so she'd, <laughs> she'd ring and she'd do all these stupid, crazy things. Like I, the one call I remember above everything else was she just rang me and she said, at the beep, it will be nine o'clock. <laughs> and then she hang up the phone. Like it was just, she was gone and I couldn't do anything but sit and laugh. So having people around me that, 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 um, you know, just sort of lightened the load a bit was, was huge. The other thing that was really important in that whole period um, was the connections that I'd made through sport over the years. Mm. So I'm involved in a what some would call a rather unique old-fashioned sport and it's just the team that I had around me throughout that time just to be able to go into a training session for two hours a week and just not have to think about stuff and them not grill me on are you okay all the time and making sure they were tiptoeing around me and that kind of thing and just sort of life being a bit normal. Those two hours a week were my absolute salvation. So sport was a huge mm. part of that and the, the members of that team were a huge part of that. Mm. So you, you've got to tell us now, I was going to raise this a little bit later, tell us the sport. What, what, what sport have you had a passion for that um, might surprise a few people? So from the age of 14, Rob, I was a marching girl. I've spent time both as a competitor, I've been a national judge, I've been an administrator and everything in between. And now I'm almost with a heavy heart have to say that I now fit into the master's age category, but having <laughs> as much fun with the girls now as what I ever did in the past. So as I say, a unique, somewhat old-fashioned sport, but I love it. Um, yes, I get some ribbing about it from time to time, but it's um, it's something that I love. It's something that I'm passionate about. And as I say, it, it's been my salvation on more than one occasion. So it's um, every time I try and step away from it, somehow, somewhere, I end up being drawn back into it. And to me, that is that just shows a sport that um, loves you as much as you love it. You, you're very modest because I know you're very, very good at it and you've won many, many uh, medals, gold medals and all sorts of things in that sport. So I think you've been a little bit modest as to how good you actually were in that particular chosen sport. And this may be a, uh, a not well-known fact about Amanda Linton, but you went on Australia's Got Talent, am I right? Is that correct? <laughs> 
<laughs> I, now, why did I know that was going to come out somewhere? Uh, yes, Rob, in 2012, I was on Australia's Got Talent with Black Diamond's Drill Dance Team, which is now what the modern version of marching is. So, look, I have to say it was it was all very lighthearted. It was a huge amount of fun. And just at that time in life, it was probably one of those beautiful distractions that I needed. So I mm. never thought that I would say I would be on TV, let alone in a significantly short dress and um, <laughs> holding some big dancing feathers. It was quite an experience, I have to tell you. Uh, absolutely, it was. It was. I, I I can remember when it was actually put on, and I, I sat there in in awe of your uh, abilities. So there oh, you go. I think that it would be more appropriate to say you were possibly sitting in stitches, but that's okay. I'll take your day any day. No, it was it was a, a wonderful moment. Um, just uh, sort of want to draw to a bit of an end the, the challenges that you did have with depression and anxiety, but the the work you do now with Beyond Blue or the connection you have, I, I know it's it's reasonably significant. I, only today, I think I saw um, a number of podcasts that have come out just recently that Beyond Blue are involved in, and uh, I believe yourself has even been involved in one recently. What is your connection now with Beyond Blue? Do you want to uh, share that with us? So I now, um, I have a couple of different connections with them now, one of which I'm very fortunate and feel very honoured to be able to represent ICB with um, in our capacity as a professional association in conjunction with working with Beyond Blue. So Beyond Blue are one of our key partners. And so that gives us the opportunity to have some input and some insight into things that are developed, training tools, reference materials, things like the recently released online training for um, advisors. And it's been particularly targeted at bookkeepers and accountants. So that was a, that's been a really great project to have been involved in and one that I've been quite proud of to not only be involved in myself, but also to have the ICB um, stand behind us and all our members. So um, we tend to do quite a lot of advocacy work with them now. We do a lot of representation, sit on some advisory boards, etc. But probably the, um, the bigger part that I play which I actually started prior to joining ICB, uh, was I was asked to become a member of their Professional Speakers Bureau. So what that actually mm. is, is quite often a business or an organisation and sometimes a sporting organisation or a school may request a professional speaker just to come and give their story um, so that they can make that real heart-to-heart connection around someone who's actually lived through the, the challenges of depression and anxiety. And how that particularly came about was interestingly I was sitting in a in a tax office advisory meeting two day advisory meeting and little bits and pieces of my story started to emerge throughout that meeting so I was asked to go and speak at a beyond blue breakfast here in Adelaide. And they said to me, oh, look, it's us partnering with a local business chapter. Um, I'm sure you'll do fine. And the thing, couple of things to remember, first of all, I had never told my story publicly let alone to a room full of business people. So that was a pretty significant challenge for me to overcome. A bit of there was a huge amount of fear and um, and quite a lot of trepidation about actually doing that. But when the way they described it, I assumed that it was going to be I'd walk into a room beyond blue representative and maybe twenty or thirty business people. What I wasn't expecting, Rob, was to walk into a room of two hundred and thirty people mm-hmm. and being on stage to give my story. Mm. And that fight or flight sort of feeling kicked in and I was ready to run. I was ready to not get up on that (laughs) stage, I have to tell you. And so someone 
sort of gave me a somewhat reassuring tap on the shoulder just beforehand. And so I went up on stage and I spoke. And afterwards, I don't ever actually remember any time in my life feeling so empowered as what I did when I came down off that stage. And so for me, that was a real moment where I made the decision to say, if I tell my story and if I talk about it, if one person listening can connect to it and that can mean one person reaches out for help or reaches out for support, then it's absolutely worth it so that, so, so no one else has to go through what I went through. So that's that's why I do it. That's um, it's something that I am very passionate about, as you know, and mm. something that I'll continue to be passionate about for the certainly for the foreseeable future anyway. And that's exactly... Um, the experience that I've I've seen when you speak, you 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 do um, impact on people's lives. So it's a wonderful thing that you're doing now. In amongst what you just said, you you use the the term connection. Um, I'm really interested to just hear a little bit. Earlier we spoke a lot about mum, dad. We didn't speak a lot about and and I know there is a story there about connection. Um, do you want to? enlighten the the listeners as to to, to how that one's unfolded as well, which is quite an amazing story. Yeah, look, it's – at first I didn't think it was anything particularly significant in my life really. You know, as I said, I was 10 years old when mum and dad separated. That in itself is not an unusual story, unfortunately, nowadays. Um, And dad sort of wasn't around a lot when I was growing up and, you know, he would – it got to a stage when I was in my early teens where – He'd promised to come and take us for the weekend or he'd promised to come to a school event and at the very, very last minute something would always come up and I was always left feeling quite disappointed. So it got to a point where he would actually turn up to pick us up for a weekend visit and I'd go for a bike ride or something. I'd I'd just be anywhere else but where I had to be to go with him. So what that led to really was – was a significant portion of my childhood, in fact, up until my mid-20s, just before I got married the first time, um, where I really had no relationship with him to speak of at all. And, you know, life, as I've mentioned before, you know, I had life with mum and my sisters and we still had a great life, you know, but it was, I was missing that father figure, I suppose, um, in my life. So, as I say, life goes on and, you know, circumstances take control. And I remember getting a phone call from him saying, I'm just leaving doctors and I'm heading to the hospital. They've told me I've just had a mild heart attack. And I remember thinking, man, this is crazy. I haven't spoken to him for years, but I'm going to, I'm about to lose my dad. So mm. I remember going into the hospital and standing there and just driving in thinking, this is crazy. Someone in this situation has to be the adult, I suppose, and um, mm. and try and make a reconnection. So I did. I reached out and just said, you know, whatever the last few years has been like, um, do I continue to hold on to that or do I just draw a line in the sand and say, now's the time to move on, otherwise I'm going to potentially lose whatever time I've got left with him. So I made the decision then that I would start to reconnect. So I did and it was in a fairly soft way to start with and so we'd catch up every few months and maybe, you know, have a coffee and it was all sort of fairly loose. And then when my first marriage broke down, my mum, who, as I said, is, I was very close to, was actually overseas, and but I was close to her sister, and I went to see mum's sister, and the first thing that she said to me was, have you spoken to your dad? And I was like, oh, no, you know, I'll talk to him later. And she said, I think it would be a really good idea that you pick up the phone. Well, Rob, 
I don't know that I can describe just the amazing connection that was made with my dad on that mm. very day. It was, I picked up the phone and I told him he was there in less than an hour. And from that day to this, he has probably been my strongest support network, my mentor, my friend, my number one fan, if I can call it that. Um, and now the relationship that I have with him is something so absolutely amazing. I'm, I'm so close to him. And as I get older, I realise the more like him that I am than what I ever thought <laughs> I was. So uh, it's it was a, a really lovely story of reconnection. And as I say, now we're closer than we have ever been. And I love it. I love the fact that I can pick up the phone and, and I've got that great connection with my dad. So it's, yeah, it's it's pretty special. It certainly is. And I'm I'm personally glad you did because I've got to know your dad a little bit uh, over the last probably six, seven years maybe. And he's a ripping fellow. He, uh, he's, he's very, uh, very clear on his thoughts and opinions, but he uh, he's usually pretty spot on the mark. In my experience, he's a, he is an absolute uh, ripping fellow. So uh, I'm glad you made that connection. And, and again, it just shows how, you know, as humans, we, we sometimes do put obstacles in our way, don't we, that really kind of reach a point where you go, what, why, why have we done that? You know, why, why is that the case? And that story alone just sort of recognises that. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think, and I know that your dad has also then gone on to play quite a significant impact for you with the bookkeeping business that you developed up over those following years. Because uh, I've seen I've seen some of his handiwork. He's a very clever fellow. Yeah, look, he's. I have to say, um, if I could probably say who's been the most inspirational part of that journey from the from that very first day where I said I was going to go and work for myself, right through until even today. You know, I still, he's the one that I generally pick up the phone for if I need a bit of advice mm. about something or, mm. you know, I just need to clear my head or I just need to talk something through with someone who's just that one step removed. So he's he's an amazing part of my, my business journey. I would never have got to where I got to without him and without his support. And um, for that, I'll be eternally grateful to him. So now we'll, we'll move along a bit further. Uh, I want to sort of sort of get to the moment where you um, get the ICB bug happening, and and uh, clearly <laughs> you've taken that to a whole new degree, being the CEO of the institute. But before we we sort of get to that, I know that you, and I think it's as a result of some of the the journey that you've just sort of led us through. I know that you have a very servant mentality. So uh, for, for some of our listeners, um, you may or may not understand where, where I'm going with this, but uh, Amanda's very generous with her time and certainly very generous when it comes to people who maybe need some help and assistance. And I'd love for you to share with the listeners, Amanda, some of that journey. I know you did a, an amazing trip to South America last year. Uh, I think it was last year, wasn't it? it yes, was. last year. We're, we're losing track of what year we are, thanks to this year. Um, and also, Christmases, uh, there's something special that, that happens every Christmas. So do you want to enlighten the, li the listeners on, on, on that that you, uh, you uh, give so freely to? So I suppose if I take a step back from just the Christmas, um, from what I do at Christmas as to why I do what I do, um, through, through the challenges that I've had over the years, what I've actually worked out is 
is one of my my methods of healing or helping me get through each day is to actually wake up of a morning and say, what can I do for someone else today? And so really where I, I take that is I want my life to not be about me. I want to be about serving others and being of service to others. And so that comes everything and that's in every facet of my life. That's whether I'm talking about the way in which I engage and interact with our team. Uh, when I had my own, my other team, when I had freedom accounting support, you know, the way in which that I manage that team. And so for me, it's really always come down to a situation of living by the ethos of treat other people as you wish to be treated has been my number one priority. But it's also too that to, to understand the fact that it doesn't matter where you're born, how much money you have, what your title or your status might be, at the end of the day, we're all on the same par. We're all here mm -hmm. to contribute. Yeah. We're all here to, when you're talking about a work environment, we're, we're all here engaged to do a job. So I very much come from the place that I don't care that I have the title and the honour of being the CEO of ICB. And that's why frequently if you hear me when I introduce myself, uh, particularly at a team-based event or an ICB-based event, I will say I'm part of the team. So we've had members on occasion who have been a little bit caught out and said, hey, you didn't tell us you're the CEO. Uh, mm. And it's because mm. that's, to me, that's not what it's about. So it doesn't matter to me whether it's our office junior team or whether or not it's myself or Matthew or our board or anyone in between. At the end of the day, we all have a role to play. And if, as long as each of us play our part and each of us contribute, then there's no one role in, in any organisation that's more important than the others. They're just different. So... So that's kind of really the ethos of where, where it's all come from. But what you're referring to for Christmas Day, part of that for me is, is trying to figure out, as I say, a way of how I can serve other people. So my husband and I quite often get together on, well, every Christmas, in fact, and um, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and we work with a local church mission here in Adelaide, and we prepare lunch for we usually cater for between 250 and 300 people. That's a, a real mix of people who are homeless, refugee, have refugee status, some people that just don't even have any other family around on Christmas Day. And so, as I say, we prepare all of Christmas Eve and then Christmas Day is spent um, preparing and serving lunch to 250, 300 people. And I have to tell you, Rob, it is the most rewarding day of my life every year. And we just can't imagine life or Christmas being any other way than that. And, you know, on that, that's a real challenge for this year because we don't know if we're going to be able to, to be able to have that lunch. So yeah. we're, we're now kind of sitting back going, wow, um, rather than, hey, we've got a year off from because it's hard yakker, I have to tell you. It's two days of really hard work. But now we're sort of sitting back going, well, rather than say, well, oh, we've got a Christmas day to ourselves. How great's this? We're now trying to find out something. What else can we do? Is there something else that we can actually do to contribute on Christmas day? So it's, it is really important. It is, it is hugely important that to me that life doesn't become about me. And I suppose if you want to take it to that one other philosophical level, 
I don't want to get to the end of my days and someone sort of say, hey, she had a heap of money in the bank and she'd been this, had held this title or she'd run this business. Like I want people to remember for the actual contribution that I made um, and how I've hopefully touched a few lives along the way. And that's really kind of the legacy that I want to leave. It's an amazing attitude and and it's one that, like I say, I've, I've observed from you over a, a period of time and yeah, you raise an interesting point. Christmas is, is probably looming differently for many of us this year, but those people that you serve clearly have a, an even greater need than ever this Christmas. So we, we're yet to unpack that one, I reckon, as a, as a society as to what Christmas will look like in a COVID-19 uh, environment. So, yeah, it's a good point you raise, actually. And it's so amazing, Rob, because that day, um, whereas I say that's not about me, like it's about me. Like I love the fact that I love the fact of watching people who come in, some who have maybe it's been a little while since they've had a shower or a bath or whatever. Um, Mm. Some who you just know have not had a solid meal for a few weeks and to see the absolute appreciation on their face for the fact that you've actually just taken the time to think about them and to know that they're not forgotten. So where I say is Christmas Day is not about me, I get the most amazing sense of achievement and joy out of that. That really kind of does become about me in a way. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing time of year for us. It's joy, behest joy, I would suggest. Um, those that the other recipients would uh, would would absolutely uh, probably attest to that if they could uh, uh, have a voice right now. We are starting to to move into the, the the now. We've kind of, I think, to a degree, unpacked most of the past, and and an amazing story it is. Um, but I, I really, I'm really keen to just maybe understand where did the involvement with ICB come in? Where at what point? Uh, I know you'd been a member for a while, but at what point did you suddenly go, hey? you know, this potentially is going to be something that's that's part of my life for not just the now, but I suspect it'll be for a while yet. Um, how, did, how did all that come about? So it's kind of been a really, it almost crept up on me, to be perfectly honest. It, um, you know, I had met Matthew Addison at a MYOB event, I think it was, um, a number of years ago. And so I had then turned around and we we used to talk about things that used to affect the industry. And as, as I mentioned at the start, at the time that I built that practice, there were maybe half a dozen bookkeeping businesses in the country. So because there was starting to be a shift to people working together. There was a shift towards the Tax Agent Services Act coming in, but there was quite a lot for us to unpack. And so he and I would quite often sit and um, and just chew the fat, I suppose, about what was going on around the place. And then in 2010, I got a phone call from Matthew um, asking me, would I like to be on the ICB board and be a little bit more involved in the strategic direction of ICB? And I just thought it was a really great way to give back to an industry that I just love and and maybe help a few other people, you know, enjoy some of what I'd been through um, in building my business and being able to represent the industry. So that was where the original first touch point came from. So as I say, I joined the board in 2010 and then as time progressed and ICB grew as an organisation, we then got to a point where we knew that the workload, Matthew's workload was pretty well unsustainable. He was sort of getting into the position of where I was in my business and we both recognised that that was not a good place for him to be. And also too, it was starting to hamper the growth of ICB. We really needed to 
to break his role up into two and that's effectively um, what we did. So funny enough, in one of those very first early um, conferences, I remember him saying to me, um, you know, oh, would you ever go back and work for someone again? And it might have been towards the back end of the night, let's be fair. I think I turned around and said to him, oh, I'd only ever work for ICB, but I'd only do it if I had your job. And so that was 10 years prior. That was in 2007. And it became a bit of a joke between him and I for quite a long time. (laughs) And then maybe a couple of years before uh, I formally took the role with ICB, he contacted me and said, hey, do you remember this conversation we had all those years ago? You know, do you think you would consider it? And at the time, I remember thinking, oh, yeah, look, that'd be great. But hey, Matthew, I'm living in Adelaide. I really have no intention of relocating to Melbourne um, to take the job as much as I'd love to take your job. And um, so it, it went a bit cold again. And then we just got to a point one day where he rang me and he said, if we're going to do this, I need you to do it now. We'll just figure out a way to make it work. And mm-hmm. so I came on board um, as a CEO um, initially two days a week. And over the course of the next six months, that built up to a full-time role. And I suppose here we are now. So that was the journey of getting into the role. And it's been a pretty interesting journey over the last three years to get us to where we are now. And it it has indeed. And uh, I think um, at, a, at last count, we're finding uh, numbers around about 7,000 members uh, at last uh, on the last uh, newsletter, I think I saw. And I've got to say, you know, the work that I've observed you and Matthew doing together has just been amazing. And the team, and we've referenced that a few, or you've referenced that a couple of times, the team just seems to be, you know, kicking all the right goals at the moment. And it is very much a credit to you, Amanda, I've got to say. I think that probably for me, since I've come on board, certainly with the ICB, the thing that stands out for me about your your leadership is is your understanding. And again, this comes back to your, um, I guess, your, your servant almost mentality and uh, willingness to to try and understand people rather than just deal with people. You've you've dealt with a number of things since you've become CEO, but I, I would suspect that COVID is probably the biggest challenge that you've faced. Um, the thing that probably has Maybe I'm guessing a few uh, sleepless nights along the way as to to how that would look, especially in the early days. I'm interested in your views as we sort of face COVID right now, as this podcast would be going to air. The financial review last week, I'm a, a big fan of the Fin Review, funnily enough, had three articles in it in the one day that I thought, Hmm. Amanda Linton would definitely be able to speak to these topics. So one of them had the headline basically, Hail the Death of the Nine to Five Workday. I'll give you the other two first before you respond. Uh, The second story, so these were completely different stories, How to Beat Burnout for Workers in a Pandemic. And the third one was How to Work with Remote Working Staff. Now, I reckon... Almost to a deg- almost to a T, all three of those have been three challenges you've had to, to grapple with this year um, with the ICB. And I think for the listeners, um, many have grappled with this as well. So maybe just give give us a bit of an insight as to where you've landed with those and, and where do you think they're going, especially the 
the process that hopefully we're going to see sooner rather than later, and that's coming out of the other side of this pandemic. And and will we see a nine to five workday as normal? And will we see remote workers as we've had to effectively work our way through through COVID nineteen? So I think as far as the remote workforce goes, there's been it's been a really interesting journey to watch, and especially to watch our team because clearly we've had to to transition from being in an office environment. And some of our team have now been working from home since the since the middle of March when we've after just after we finished our Perth conference. So they've been home now for what's that, six and a half, seven months, you know, they've been working from home. And so it's been really interesting watching them settle from being in a in an office environment altogether and then migrating and picking up technology, having to put technology in place to be able to enable them to work from home and how they've adapted to that. And I'm sure that they would agree themselves is that some have adapted, adapted better than others. Um, but generally speaking, you know, our team's in a really great place and I just want to just want to call out to the team because it's it's been a very significant shift for us as a particularly as a national organization to be able to introduce technology be able to maintain our level of service to be able to maintain the passion that every single member of our team has for our members and to still be able to deliver and they've done that very admirably so i just want to call that out mm. up front um it's the way that i can see it working and going forward now is there will be a shift of businesses that will contract the amount of office space that they have and potentially have a part of their workforce or in some cases even all of their workforce who will work from home. If I'm 100% honest, we've been running the team from home. We haven't had anyone in the office for 12 weeks now. So if we really had to, we could probably continue to do it this way. We'd have a few little tweaks along the way, things like we'd have to rethink about things such as physical membership certificates and moving them into the digital world and those kinds of things. But we would be able to do that if, if we had to. But the one part that I think a lot of people have actually missed in all of this, and particularly a lot of the manage, managers that I have spoken to who seem to have this focus on, but we can save ourselves a whole lot of money if my team work from home. And that's all well and good. But the one thing that I've come to realise is as well as calculating the cost of being in the office, you also have to put a real tangible cost on what does that do to the cohesion of a team? What does mm. that do to their mental health from mm. from being separated apart and not being in the same room? And is that a sustainable working model? And what I've come to realise is looking at our team, even though we do have members of the team who will continue to work in a in a remote environment, I'm one of them. I won't be transiting back and forwards to the level that I was pre-COVID, which was one week Adelaide, one week Melbourne, to now I'll go over once a month or as I'm needed and required to be in the office. And we'll have team who will continue to work from home and maybe spend one day a week in the office again. But the part that most people I think have forgotten is the fact that as human beings, we need human connection. And in order to work the team, the t our team is working efficiently from home. There's no challenge around that. But to see them back in the office, I have to say, I a big part of me would like to be back there the day that I have the we have the option to bring the team back together in the office. I'm not sure a whole <laughs> lot of work will get done, but it'll just be <laughs> lovely to see that human connection. And so I think that has to be taken into account. I don't think we can sit back and say, I can save myself however many thousands of dollars by not having commercial office space because I think mm. part of a team and being a team is sometimes that ability to be in the same room and be able to communicate. So... 
yeah, I, I don't think it'll be a all or nothing, which I think was the commentator's general position at the start of all of this. I yes. think we'll start yeah. to see a, a migration. It might be two days at work, two, three days from home or whatever the mix might be. But I just think everyone's a lot more conscious now around being able to balance their commitments to home, commitments to work and, you know, do we d- and getting to the nine to five thing, well, do we need to do that? And we've proven mm. that with our own team. We've proven that with the fact that there are certain roles that require a nine to five rostering arrangement, mainly because, and that's mainly our frontline team. That's our support team to be able to pick up the phone call when a member rings. That's the ability for um, a, a member of member services to answer that member services inquiry during the day. But then we have other elements and other roles within our team that at the end of the day, as long as there's open communication, as long as the communication is consistent, and that's the one thing that I've learned, you don't have to be in a meeting for an hour every week as long as the meeting time is the same every week. So it's the consistency is where the efficiency comes from, not the duration of meetings and having meetings for meetings' sake. So, yeah. But some of the roles in our organisation, we could quite quite easily adapt to have someone who starts work at, say, 7am, finishes a bit early, or maybe doesn't start until lunchtime and works through, you know, to a little bit later in the evening. So... I just think the whole dynamic is going to change and I think for business to be successful going forward that it has to be a real honest and open working conversation between employees and employers and I think the minute we start to become legalistic about it and I think the minute that we start to become entitled or have this sense of entitlement is when that will become challenged and those people who haven't been able to manage that I think will snap back to what they're used to, which is the nine to five. But I I don't see that as a progressive working arrangement going forward. I don't necessarily think it's necessary. I think what you've just shared, hopefully for the listeners, will be something that may help them with their own practice. Now, we at the ICB, clearly we've got, you know, 25 staff, I think it is, or thereabouts. Um, and you might only have a, uh, a bookkeeping practice of three or four, but I think some of the lessons that um, Amanda's just unpacked there are just as impactful uh, if I can put it that way, for somebody with three or four in their practice and 25, uh, the considerations stay the same. But um, I think it's, it, even, it, it, it's even beyond that. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off, Rob. It's, I think it's even beyond that. It's Think of that single bookkeeper who's listening who, for varying reasons, have care commitments, kids at school, yeah. whatever it might yeah. be. Um, do you have to go back to a nine-to-five working arrangement? Did you mm. need to do that in the first place? Can mm. you set expectations? Have you utilised technology in a way now? And that's what's enabled us to be adaptive as a team is have you got the technology in place so that you can move information around? We have the paperless office scenario so that if your work-life balance, if I can put it that way for you, means that you don't start work until the kids go to bed at night or you're up extra early in the morning and you, or you have a break in the middle of the day or whatever it is that actually works for you. I think that's people are so much more accepting of that now than what they ever were before. And they're just used to the fact that people work from home and kids come into Zoom meetings and pets walk in front of cameras and... <laughs> dogs bark. Dogs yes. bark and all of those kinds of things. Absolutely. So I just think that a, a whole lot of... I think if people just allow themselves to be released of the pressure of mm. of 
sticking to this mould of to be professional, I have to work nine to five or I have to be available nine to five and and just take a bit of pressure off each other and, and figure out what works for you. And whether you're, say, an individual or a team of 25, um, there's no right or wrong answer as to what that looks like. It's it's whatever works for you and for you, you and your clients or in our case, us and our members. Wonderful insights and I hope, folks, that um, you, you've taken on board some of those insights because I, I reckon there's some absolute gems amongst those. And um, uh, unfortunately, Amanda, we're going to start to bring this particular podcast to an end. Before we do, however... I've got a, uh, a process, a game you might call it. You know that I'm a little bit uh, into my games and having a bit of fun. Uh, we've, we've, we've covered often some pretty serious stuff tonight and um, I would like to, to maybe end it in a, in, a, in a process that I call debits and credits. Now, of course, you know, what else would you play if you're running a bookkeeping podcast? So, um, the, so how this works is I'm going to rapid fire give you four questions uh, two of them are debits and two of them are credits. In other words, uh, the debits probably are looking at a side of you that maybe you, you feel a little bit uncomfortable about, but the credits sort of bring it around the other way. And of course, as we know in bookkeeping, every good journal has equal debits and credits. So uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So I'm just, you can answer these as significantly, as lengthy as you want, but I'm suggesting that they'll probably be shorter rather than longer. We'll, we'll see. So we'll start with the debit. We'll start with a debit. Okay. We, we talked a lot about growing up in Hobart, Launceston in, in Tasmania. When you think back, we talked about smells a bit earlier. Uh, food. What was the one food? or piece of food that mum gave you that you just look back now and go, oh, mum, how could you give me that? I just despised it being in my mouth. What <laughs> comes to mind? That's a really easy one for me to answer. The oven-baked fish fingers. <laughs> um, I'm not going to reveal right now, but that Damn them. <laughs> I've just seen our menu for tea tonight um, and I'm pretty sure Fish Fingers is on the menu. But, um, okay, so that's debit number one. Excellent. Uh, we move to a credit now because we're going to have equal debits and credits. Thinking of the now, if you could sit down to one meal, one food, what would it be? What What literally gets your taste buds screaming in delight? An amazing Thai curry. Oh, very nice. Yes. In fact, I think I've seen you tuck into a nice Thai curry uh, from time to time. So, okay, very good. So back back to the debits. Again, thinking a little bit, maybe not quite back to your childhood, childhood, but more into your teenage years maybe. When you look at maybe, say, a photo of that time or whatever, what's, what's the one fashion item that you go, oh, my goodness, how could I have even thought of wearing that or maybe a hairdo you were rocking at the time or whatever? Is there something that you sort of look back or is it a case of it's not actually a debit that you think, oh, wow, I wouldn't mind going back to that time? Well, I remember going to a hairdresser for the very first time in my mid-teens and her saying to me, who's been cutting your hair? And I said, <laughs> it was mum. And she leaned over and she whispered in my ear and said, 
I don't mind if I never have to charge you. Please don't ever let her touch it again. So I think <laughs> it would have to be my hairdo back then would be the one thing that I was not particularly proud of. But I suppose if you've got to talk about clothes, I was at school in the days where you had the good old uh, socks that came three parts of the way up your calf. Um, <laughs> more like leg warmers than socks they were, Rob. I look at my school photos and I think, what were you thinking? But anyway. <laughs> Uh, so the old homegrown haircut. See, the thing is, mum was ahead of her time because through COVID, I reckon that's become one of the big stories of COVID-19 is the, the homegrown haircut. So maybe mum was just sort of prepping you for a, a future time. My mum had a lot of good qualities and was great at a lot of things. Cutting our hair was possibly not a strength of hers. Hairdressing wasn't uh, one of her majors, I'm guessing. All right, so w- now we get to the final credit, and um, this one I think um, is a is a worthy way to kind of bring this podcast to to somewhere near an end. Each day, you've got to jump out of bed and and face face the bookkeeping industry. What is the thing that inspires you the most about bookkeepers and the bookkeeping industry, and and literally does get you to to jump out of bed each day? My love and passion for this industry comes from the people who are in it. I have never known a group of people to care and love for and a genuine care and love for the work that they do. And not only for the work that they do, but for the commitment and the dedication to their clients. I've been involved in a number of industries over the years and I have to say the heart of a bookkeeper without sounding, and this is not scripted anyone um, as far as mm-hmm. as far as calling to the name of the podcast, but the heart of the people in this industry is something that I admire every day. And being able to provide tools, resources, and support for those people who do such an amazing job, that's what gets me out of bed each morning. Well, I'm going to suggest is that we couldn't end on a better note than that. Um, Amanda, it's been truly inspirational to hear your story. Um, I think, I hope that everybody has heard your heart tonight and uh, I think you've really uh, captured that, you know, even in your last statements there. That That's what we're hoping to do in this podcast, but you've taken me certainly on a journey today that I didn't see coming and um, it's it's been an honour, it's been a pleasure and I want to thank you and I'm sure the listeners, if they had a voice right now, would thank you too. You're an inspiration. You um, you certainly are a, a leader, no, no issue at all, a leader in our industry and we're very thankful that you do what you do every day and uh, it's it's certainly my hope and prayer that you will continue to do it for a long time into the future. So, Amanda Linton, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Rob, and good luck and all the best for the future of the podcast series. Thanks, Amanda. Well, there it is, folks. Episode one of Heart of the Bookkeeper featuring Amanda Linton is now done and dusted and I want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us on our very, very first episode of this podcast series. We also want to thank Amanda especially for the time that she has taken to share her journey, a very intimate at times journey through her bookkeeping experiences and we hope that this has resonated with you and has helped you in some way as you are either starting out in the bookkeeping journey or perhaps are continuing your long journey along that pathway. 
We uh, also hope that this has created some inspiration for you in your journey and that this amazing industry will be continuing as one that will have impact in your life. Join us in episode two of Heart of the Bookkeeper when we unpack the life of one of the most significant figures in our industry of the past 25 years. I'm referring to Mr. Matthew Addison. If you want to understand more about how the bookkeeping industry has been shaped in the past 25 years here in Australia, this is one episode you do not want to miss. Your passion as a bookkeeper is what this podcast is all about and Matthew's passion is one that is undeniable. And we look forward to you joining us again soon on Heart of the Bookkeeper. Until next episode, may it be well with your heart. See you then.